Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome, everyone. This is Mike Lewis with the Fanalytics Podcast. Today, I am joined by Lucy Rushton from the Atlanta United. Hi, Lucy. Hi. Lucy's a really special guest for the podcast. Before we turned on the mics, we were talking a little bit about Lucy's sort of the titles they use in soccer versus some traditional American sports. Your title is the technical, what are you? Yep, head of technical recruitment and performance analysis. Okay, and you report to the technical director. Yes, Carlos Bocanegra, yes. Okay, oh, I like how you said that, the the little bit of the the rolling R in the the name. (laughs) Oh, it's not as good as some people say it. (laughs) And so how would you, how would we translate technical director to general manager? Yes, yes, general manager I think is is probably the closest that it's going to translate to, yes. And And some clubs have that over here, some, some, some soccer clubs, I think DC United, for example, still call it general manager. They've gone with general manager? Yes. How would we translate your title then? Head scout, head analyst? Yes, head scout can be one form of it, but then at the same time, it's almost kind of a data scout as well. Mm-hmm. Um, say my job, as well as doing the subjective, so as well as watching players on video, is to incorporate the, the data and to try and scout players through the use of, of data and, and, and okay. analytics as well. And so this is how I um, how I first met Lucy was a, a couple of years ago when the Atlanta United was more like a concept than a team, right? So we mm-hmm. first met before you guys had a single player on the roster. I mean, is that yep. right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. And so who was on? So at that point, there were probably just a handful of employees, right? Yes, you, I Carlos. Think, yeah, there was a, probably about ten employees at the time. I think I was probably the number. I don't know six seven eight something like that so yeah I remember that first year being just we we were based out of um one of Arthur's offices and there was kind of like five or six of us and and that was it so the the reference is to Arthur Blank the owner of the Atlanta United and the and the owner of the Atlanta Falcons as well yes so you're you're interested in or sort of you're you're brought in to um you know, work with data, work with uh, video, sort of, and, and so the video is, of course, data, but work with, um, say, more like digital data, statistical data. Yes, yes. So my job primarily was to to come in and help the team build that roster okay. by using, say, the subjective analysis, which is the watching and mm-hmm. and your own perceptions, but then the objective analysis okay. as well which is obviously the the data and the the statistics and that's that's really interesting to me and, and and so the reason why i wanted to have you on on the podcast lucy was to talk about how do you use analytics to build a to build a team mm-hmm. to build a team from scratch as a little bit of an aside it's interesting what you say and that you are doing both you know because i think in a lot of times traditionally you know a lot of this interest in analytics comes from the realm of baseball in the states and so you know the traditional thing is you've got this almost a stereotype of the grizzled old scout that goes to every game he watches these guys play in california or florida 
and you know he he's it's it's the eyeball test and mm-hmm. then on the other side you've got the the university kid with the calculator and the pencil protector and the spreadsheets and <laughs> the uh the software it, all, all this kind of stuff but you, in a way you're kind of hitting both yes a hundred percent that is that is the the key part of all of this is that you can't and you wouldn't have one without the other okay. um we complement both so we use the objective data to complement the subjective and vice versa and it's getting that balance between the two which i think is what drives a successful department in that sense but that that puts an amazing burden on you so you've got to know you've got to know the game totally oh yeah 100 percent. 100 i mean and you've also got to know how to work with the data Yes, for and, sure. And so it's almost like you have to be a, you know, folks can, can do these jobs are relatively rare. You're combining rare, a rare skill with another rare skill set. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's what makes it like so important. It's such an important part of it for my job is that I understand the sport because for me, it's the interpretation of the data, mm-hmm. um, which is the key, I think. And, you know, you can get data from multiple sources, but the most important part is how you actually understand that and apply it to the game um and for me you have to have that knowledge of the game to be able to do that okay and that's that's an interesting thing and sort of let's let's come back to that in a little bit but so the starting point is that in-depth knowledge of the game comes first in your world in my world it actually and you know we've we've done some work together i'm pretty comfortable relying on someone else's expertise (laughs) and so i almost always want to start with the analytics and mm-hmm. then just be open about what I don't know. Yeah. Because when we're working together, well, how would you characterize my soccer knowledge? And you can be as cruel as you want. <laughs> uh, improving. I was going to say, it's improving. It's, it's um, steadily growing now, yeah. I think. Yeah, uh, it, probably, <laughs> it probably took a couple of years for me to stop calling it the field and start yeah. calling it the pitch, right? <laughs> we're getting there. We're getting yeah. there. We're making progress. <laughs> so, But no, in, in response to that, it's funny because actually at some some clubs will employ... Um, a data analyst who may not know anything about the sport. A data scientist. Yes, a, yep, a complete data scientist. Do you scientist. want one of those working for you? In terms of what they can do above my expertise when it comes to mm-hmm. analytics, like it is just unbelievable. Um, so for me, I would need to be able to work with them to direct them in terms of the data right. and the analysis projects they do. Um, because I think if you, even if you look at a lot of kind of conferences and forums where students will do analysis projects they lack what they lack is that kind of interpretation of the data and how it's actually going to be meaningful um so they come up with these fantastic algorithms and projects and stuff but actually they they lack a purpose um and they lack any kind of real kind of connection to the football world um so i think like it's okay to have that person in a department but they really need to have somebody who understands the game to drive their projects. One of the things that I've heard people mention is um, to mix to mix sports here is that the data scientist person plays the role of the offensive line. And mm-hmm. so in, in football, it's like the data science person is the one, they're the one sort of at the point of attack, sort of cleaning up, doing the dirty work. Okay. Where, you know, the where the people that are sort of having the... I don't know, you know, the, the skill players, you <laughs> might say, you know, the quarterbacks, the running backs, the receivers, the offensive line allows them to do what they do best. Okay. And yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. So if you have a data scientist, that's yep. the person that can, you don't have to spend, because you know, if you're doing an analysis, how much time do you spend pulling the data versus doing the analysis? Oh, yeah, it can be quite, I mean, at the start, you you would build, I mean, I spend hours and hours and hours building kind of templates and stuff Mm -hmm. to be able to pull relevant data sets and then as you say once you've pulled that then you really need a significant amount of time to to spend interpreting it and I think the problem that I used to have certainly is that I'd spend so much time pulling the data together and putting it into Mm -hmm. kind of you know the outputs that I needed that then you you then really lack time to then actually be able to spend to just sit down with the data and read through it and actually right. analyze it um so yeah data scientist in that way takes that yeah. big pressure off you i almost think it ends up being like an 80 20 rule where mm-hmm. it's like i spend 80 percent of the time reading in the data merging the data mm-hmm. cleaning up the data yep 
and then 20% of the time doing the the interesting stuff. Yes, 100%. Right. Yeah, totally agree with that. And that, that's a problem that I've always kind of experienced, even like working in first team football is, is you know, even when you get your post-match analysis mm. data, for example. What's first team football? Okay, so first team football, I'd, I'd, I would call that like when you're specifically working with the first team as opposed to scouting externally you're working internally with the first team so you're actually kind of um you're doing maybe pre-match reports and um looking at the opposition you're providing analysis on your own team Mm. post-match um so i I, that's just my language how i would call kind of first team as a as opposed to scouting but even working in that realm so after a game you get all the data back from from your performance and you want to provide feedback to the coaches um but you spend as you said, probably eighty percent of the time, just pulling the data and putting it into mm-hmm. into format and stuff Usable and cleaning form. it. Yeah, yeah. Right. That then, that then you just don't have time to actually sit down and interpret it properly. So when you first got here, when you first got to the United, what existed in terms of data? Anything? Um, was it was it as literally a, as a club? Most, was it, I mean, sort of, you know, Carlos hired you. Did Carlos hire you or did Darren hire yes, you? Yes, 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 both of them, yes. Okay, so you came in, you showed up to Atlanta. Yep, with they my ga- two suitcases and that's it. <laughs> they they yep. gave you a laptop. Yep. And they said, hey, you got to help us build a roster. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And yeah. so then did you have to identify what data sets to gain access to, to purchase, to subscribe to? Yes, yeah, and... um Basically, from my background in England, I'd worked with numerous different data sets and so was very was very strong on that I wanted us to use Opta, um, Opta Data, which um, is used throughout the world um, by just every most massive leagues in the world and, and individual clubs will use Opta. It's it um, provides data for for media companies as well as, okay. as clubs. And so I'd used that previously and felt very strong that it was one of them, the most most reliable but also the most comprehensive as well in terms of their um their data sets from numerous other leagues which when when you're getting it for scouting is really important because obviously you don't just recruit from so that was MLS. so that was job one yeah identifying the products yeah okay. yeah for sure yeah <laughs> I'm just, I'm just you know it's like i just want to sort of document sort of the history there so they bring you in lucy we're we're going to be a data-driven team or at least partially data-driven team. Mm-hmm. Assemble the infrastructure. Yep, yep, for sure, yep. Okay. What was the second thing they asked you to do? Start finding players. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, start uh, start uh, watching and start finding players. Okay. Well, and this is kind of an interesting thing about soccer, at least interesting to me. Like if I'm, uh, if I'm starting an expansion team in the NFL or the NBA, that's kind of easy. I know where to look. Mm-hmm. Right in the NFL, I'm going to watch some college football. I'm going to look at the NFL, and we're going to start pulling from there. In the realm of soccer, where'd you start? You know, how do you how do you get your head around that kind of yeah. global problem? Yeah, and it is it is a, a global problem, as you say. Um, within the the league rules, um, we have obviously a salary cap, so um, we could only spend so much money. Um, we also have a certain number of international slots available, mm-hmm. um, so we can only bring in so many international players. But we do have that flexibility to do that, so we can look anywhere in the world. Um, so, c- trying to kind of wean down that number from millions and millions of players and playing mm-hmm. playing around the world to ones that are actually realistic is uh, and was a massive, massive task. Well, and okay, so this kind of this notion of um, you've got you can sign a couple of international players or a number of international players. You've got a salary cap. What's the other thing you guys have? Um, exempt players? What do you call it in MLS? Um, the players sure. that can make more money than... Oh, yeah. So designated players. Designated yes, players. Yes. Yeah. So you have three, you can have three designated players on your roster. Yeah. So you've got the league rules, which um, when I think about this as a purely analytical person, it's like you've got, uh, you're, at, you're asked to build a roster and then you've got this kind of set of constraints. Mm-hmm. So how do the constraints impact someone in your role? Do they tell you, yeah, don't even look at anyone in the EPL because they make too much? In certain instances, yes. Like, I mean, that's a prime example. The the likelihood of us being able to afford someone who's playing in the Premier League um, and the chances of them coming out of the Premier League to to a league Mm -hmm. like MLS are, are slim to none. Yes, it does eradicate certain leagues okay. um, straight away or, or for certain positions. Um, for example, you'll see in the MLS, um, 
most teams de- designated players will be attacking players okay. you don't see very many designated players who are defenders so you could potentially when you're looking for attackers look at those more kind of bigger leagues and the more expensive players but if you're looking for defenders chances are you're gonna you're gonna have to kind of steer clear of those and 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 look somewhere else so was that kind of i mean again i I keep coming back to the fact that this strikes me as a really tough problem to start with and that you've got like this enormous funnel of Mm -hmm. and i don't know thousands upon thousands of players how do you start to attack this lucy we need a roster you want to give me a, I mean is it almost like well give me a hint where you want to start yeah and it's well it's you know one way we done it was and you, you can use data in that early stage to start to wean out okay well what are we looking for in terms of um, and one things we done like at, right at the very start was was set out the club philosophy and the club playing styles and say right okay. this is how we're going to want to play as a team and then within that for each did you team, have the did you have the coach at that point then no no. So no. then you had to fit the coach into the playing style yeah, as well. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, we have a we have a club philosophy, um, and that that comes from Darren and Carlos, and that's that's never going to change. Irrelevant of of coach, we're going to have a a philosophy and a way of playing and a style of playing which is Atlanta United, um, and then within that, Carlos and and I quickly kind of set out the the playing styles and the 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 kind of okay. key components for each position. Well, and not to give too much of the secret sauce away, but like, what can you say about that playing style? I think anyone who watches okay. us will, will be able to, <laughs> will be able to pinpoint a few things, but yeah, fast attacking football, um, okay. which is, is looking to, to, to entertain and play on the front foot. Um, with speed, athleticism, um, we're all of okay. those kind of things. So designs, so you had some philosophy, some playing philosophy, and it's kind of interesting as a marketing guy. Mm-hmm. It's almost like that philosophy, and and it, it's kind of rare that the um, the on field side is almost explicitly con- considers the marketing side. <laughs> and maybe and maybe you guys didn't do that, but it sounds like you did. Right, fast-paced, exciting, something that's going to bring fans in. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think that was that was probably more of just Darren and Carlos's okay. like their ethos like. and how they wanted to play right. football. Yeah, um, but yeah, you're you're right in saying that that style is probably going to attract the right. fans more than than some other kind of less offensive styles. Right. So then, so you've got the philosophy, and then so then do they start off by asking you, well, Lucy? let's find attackers or let's find defenders how do they um again how do they prevent it you know what how's the work organized in terms of the analyses that they want you to do Mm -hmm. Um, at that stage it wasn't really so much of like right we're going to look at position x or position y we had um we had the positional profiles for every position built out so we knew exactly that what's a profile um, so a profile would be kind of like what are the key components, uh, the key attributes uh, or characteristics of a player in that position that we look for. So for an outside back, a fullback, you may say that we want them to be able to get up the line and support the attack in the final third rather than just being a defender, mm-hmm. for example. And so we, we built those out for every position um, and that helped steer the analysis when okay. you're looking at certain positions. But it was very much an open book in terms of going right we obviously have have people recommending players to us so we're having names thrown at us left right and center from from agents and various different sources mm. um we want to go and look at our do our own scouting and find our own players and really it was a case of just being just just having to watch and watch and watch players names that were coming through the door and players that we maybe knew from previously who we thought may be attainable and it was a jigsaw it's it's and it's you know what it was real it was a real jigsaw because any one piece that you that you get for that jigsaw could then prevent another player coming in so if you were to bring in if you would decide that okay we're going to sign tito vialba who we did sign um for example well signing him then means that we can't sign players x y and z because we only have three designated player spots mm-hmm. and he may have been one of them. And so it really has a knock-on effect to the rest of the roster. And the amount that you spend on a player obviously affects the cap. So that then has a knock-on effect on the other quality of players that you can buy in other positions. Okay, so there's two, almost two elements of this. and um, So one is something about player quality. And you, you've mentioned that you're looking for certain styles of players. Mm-hmm. 
And then there's a second component of how much do these players cost? So taking this in order, how are you doing, what are you doing with the data and analytics in terms of the style of the players? Mm -hmm. And then part two is when does the expected salary or the current salary come into this? Yep. The expected salary comes in quite early because it's straight away. If you know you can't afford them, then you're not going to spend too much time looking into them. Um, But to go back to part one, um, yes, so the analysis and the data we can use quite heavily to to, to look at playing styles and stuff. Um, We can basically use in, we build out our own platforms that allow us to go, okay, right, let's bring in all the KPIs, the key performance indicators that we think are important for let's say, uh, a centre-back. So we'll identify these five attributes of data which um, we think are important for a Mm -hmm. centre-back to come up with one score, for example, which then defines where a a centre-back would rank in our kind of in our mix in what we're saying is important um so from that we can then go okay well show me the players who perform statistically best so multiple pieces of data to end up having a single score per player yes a single you know a a bottom line number per individual yes 100 percent. yes yeah how does that come into play is that based on the traditions of the industry is that based on the preferences of the decision makers the folks that are actually going to sign the guy that they want a bottom line and like sports statistics are i think full of bottom line single statistics so like in major league baseball you know people talk about you know wins above replacement or mm-hmm. in, in basketball they'll talk about player efficiency ratings right so there is a desire for one score. What, who, where's that? Where does that come from? Um, I think it comes more from the fact that for, from an, an analyst that you want to make it easy to mm-hmm. understand okay. for the the consumer, i.e., the the people making the decisions, because a lot of them don't have backgrounds in data and analytics, so it needs to be presented to them in a way which is meaningful and and efficient, and t- so you don't have to give them a twenty page document which has hundreds of statistics. They just need one number which summarizes mm-hmm. it all for them: one for ease and two for time. Okay, and I, and I like that. It's kind of making it easy for the decision maker who may well and. You know, you've worked for a bunch of people in soccer in Europe and the U.S., and so decision makers vary in terms of comfort with data or interest in data. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think everybody I've worked with is is slightly different in how they understand and how much they lean on or like data. Um, Darren Ills, for example, our president here um, at Atlanta United, he he's got a heavy background in in kind of data being from spurs and stuff and his background um so he really what's liked... what's spurs oh sorry spurs is tottenham hotspur okay yeah. <laughs> it's a nickname for tottenham hotspur the club he used to work at um okay. that's my english coming back in no. there <laughs> um yeah so so he's very um at ease with data he he could he could um understand and take in a lot of data or a lot more data than maybe some other presidents might be able to just because of his background and and his uses of it previously. So there's there's one example there of someone who is is really kind of say in tune with data mm-hmm. and how and how much they can probably process and um, whereas others you know they've really got no no experience and so you really do have to try and simplify it for them or, or make it understandable and relevant. Well and one thing that we we're talking a lot about data what about and this is a this is a strange piece of terminology, analytics. What does analytics even mean? Because um, I think it, it, analytics can be relatively simple things, right? Here's just a mm-hmm. piece of data on one guy, and the other piece of, and a similar piece of data on another player. What about statistics? Some mm-hmm. sort of statistical modeling, statistical forecasting. In general, how much variation is there in terms of? How much of that do people want to see? And it's okay if the answer is a lot of people want to see none of it. No, I actually think that's the most interesting part, and I think that's the bit that really gets the the um, the attention of people when you're able to use the statistical. Now they may not want to see the process; um, they might <laughs> they want to see the end result. But that's the key for me is being able to use a statistical model and a statistical mm-hmm. process like you and I have done previously, um, but still come out with with one number or, or one page mm-hmm. which makes it really clear and easy and concise for 
the end user um and and for me like carlos will give me kind of um the the freedom to go away and, mm -hmm. and do statistical models and and come back with the ranking of the like okay well these are the top five now he doesn't need to know the ins and outs of the statistical model but he just wants to see okay. the outcomes but and this is kind of a this is kind of an interesting thing and when you and i were working together and we'll tell you what well, we were working together on some player evaluation and forecasting things related to the mls expansion draft mm -hmm. one of the things that um i i noticed in the process was the and look this this happens beyond just the realm of sports this is any kind of marketing thing is the real challenge between balancing complexity and sort of doing stuff that might be kind of cool with being able to explain it and you know and even that's kind of a funny way to put it being able to explain it it's um putting it putting things at the appropriate level for, and, and when I say appropriate level, that sounds like it's like you know, we're talking about how to <laughs> how to communicate to children, but that's not really it. How to put it at the level that the decision maker is comfortable with, mm -hmm. it. because then there's the balance between the complexity, which in general people want, because they want more into these models and these statistics, yep. but they also may not have the background or the interest in tracking a yes. Yes. tracking a complex method definitely and, and and for me yes the the decision makers um say in my experience have mostly wanted to say right tell me the top five that your statistical mm -hmm. model comes out with and you know tell me the names i don't need to know the, <laughs> the, the, the nitty gritties um but but there will be some kind of input from them in early stages of it so they mm. may for example we're talking about say taking kpis and then throwing them all together mm. and coming out with with one number well they may have some input into those kpis at the start but they then don't get involved in the actual process of, of, okay. of how it kind of comes to one number and i and i've heard this from numeral numerous people beyond um you know people in basketball people in baseball the importance of communication oh god yeah yep now one of the things that i that I think ends up not being maybe maybe folks aren't even aware of it, but I suspect it's more than communication. I suspect it's also about trust. Yes. Right. Because yes. they trust you, and so they trust your methods, your statistical methods. Yes, definitely. I think that's absolutely massive. It's key. You know, Carlos knows that um, I can go away, and I know, for example, his playing. What we were talking about earlier, the positional playing playing mm -hmm. styles and philosophies of each player that I can choose the appropriate data points that are going to be relevant um, that I can give them appropriate weightings for example um, in any statistical model I was using and that I can use my my knowledge and expertise in in statistics mm -hmm. and data to actually present something which is accurate and and valid and you know what's what's interesting about that is um, when I think about some of the work we did together I, I think this issue of the weightings is kind of a key one. And that's <laughs> something that I don't think I ever really kind of got right in terms of working with you guys and talking with, because a lot of what I was interested in, and on the back half of this podcast, I'll talk about methods for deriving weightings to, let's say, multi-attribute models, is to get that balance between coming up with weightings of statistics that are kind of fancy versus the let's say expert driven weightings. And I think that's, um, you know, a future project for us, which we will never get to because it's almost more of a thing of kind of a, a question that might not have a lot of value because it's just based on a curiosity of how those weightings might end up actually comparing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the weightings and the weightings can, can change from person to person <laughs> and 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 then it it really throws it can throw the the, the you know a player could come out top mm -hmm. for, from from one set of weightings but then mid table or bottom for another set of weightings um so it's really it's a really fine line as well and yeah. and and whose weightings you use and how you use those weightings is is really important but um yeah, it, it needs to be it needs to be right because it can really impact the data. Well, and I, I think you know it, it's kind of what you're saying in terms of let's say the relationship and the communication. You know, getting the buy-in on the general approach and mm -hmm. what's going to be valued is just so important. And I suspect that that's a big part of the issue in any analytics project 
that may or may not get buy-in is how much buy-in is generated before the the data polling even starts. Yeah, for sure. And and say as you kind of identified earlier, some some decision makers aren't that in tune with analysis and and don't care overly for it, um, whereas others are. Um, and it's about knowing, I think, what the end user wants mm-hmm. and and how much they're going to buy into the data before actually going down that line and to get to get that buy-in at the start is crucial because otherwise they're not going to look at and and consider the data when you present it so let me ask you this so obviously i gotta think you know you've you've probably um gotten so many accolades and pats on the back over the last Mm -hmm. couple of years in terms of going from a not having any players on the rosters to winning a championship in year two Mm -hmm. what's next (laughs) <laughs> yeah what's next um well, and we don't even have to talk about the united i mean you've been doing this for a while like where where do yeah. you see the profession going where do you see the profession going next oh for, for me like i mean there's twofold to that answer yeah there's there's where it's going for it for united which you know i we can get better 100 percent. we can get better we just missed out on the supporter shield last year which was frustrating for us on the final day of the season so there's winning that there's the champions league which means that you start playing teams from from other mm-hmm. um south american central american leagues um which we were in this year and, and we just got beaten by monterey a mexican mm-hmm. team um so i think for us to be able to to pit our wits against clubs from other other countries is is massive and really kind of shows us where mls is and mm-hmm. where we are so there's that side of things but from an analysis point of view there is so much room for growth. I think what you're seeing now in in analysis is more of sequential data, which I've I've been really keen to to come into play for a number of years now. What do you mean sequential data? Um, so rather than looking at kind of one action, you're kind mm-hmm. of looking looking oh. at multiple kind of um, multiple actions and coming up with statistics and and data points mm-hmm. which are based around multiple actions in a game rather than singular actions. So I think that's. You know, I can tell you, as a, not to interrupt you, but as a as an analyst, someone that works in the realm of you know multiple sports and um, marketing, that that kind of shift towards more dynamics is something that everyone struggles with. But obviously, the right direction to go. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even to I mean, totally different context. It's like if you're going to do segmentation and analysis of customers, it's almost always more interesting to look at like sequence of behaviors or sort of how a customer evolves how a play evolves so that's i think you're probably dead on on that yeah definitely it's somewhere where it's it's needed to go for a number of years and as you said it's it's difficult Mm -hmm. it's a difficult one to approach which is probably why the the it's been a slow uptake of it but it's just starting to kind of slowly seep through now and i think it's it's just going to continue to evolve in that are you um with something like that do you end up being almost hostage to what the data providers are offering to a certain extent yes um yes we we don't have a staff big enough to be able to to produce our own data sets so be able to watch games and and Mm -hmm. notate and analyze everything ourselves for every player um some clubs do some clubs in in europe for example will have that set up where they have numerous data analysts who are able to just for example if they're interested in a player they'll be able to take 10 games from that player and literally code the game and notate it in a way that allows them to derive their own statistics mm. um, that are relevant to them now you know we're not in a position to do that um, and so we are at the at the I say at the mercy but yeah we are we are kind of at the mercy of, of what the data providers give us because that's what we have to use do you want to be in that position do you think there's um sort of balancing the costs worth versus the uh, benefits Definitely, um, yeah. for sure. I think it's an absolute, like, not a luxury, that's the wrong yeah. word, but to be able to actually analyse and gather statistics yeah. on a player which are bespoke to your club and yeah. how you and how your technical director wants wants his, his fullback to perform is absolutely massive. Um, and it's a, it's a, such a, an, an amazing capability to be able to produce things like that. I've heard, and I don't, this is all anecdotal, but I've, my understanding is that we've actually seen some of this in baseball and major league baseball okay. where the staffs have grown dramatically over years and actually in NBA too, where the analytics staff have grown dramatically, they've built all sorts of tools 
and then the teams have actually then turned it back down. Really? Right. So it's mm-hmm. almost like okay, they came in as contractors to build the infrastructure, yep. decided what works, and then so you you went from having one person to fifteen, and then yeah. back to five. So yeah. Well, I, I do think there's a definite a definite limit in in how much you need mm-hmm. because you know as we spoke about at the very start of this, it's a very fine balance between data and how much you use data and then how much you you use and rely on subjective um and so i think if you go too data driven you leave yourself in problems there so um yeah i can understand that i got one last area for you and then i'll let you go here how much of what you get to do is based on your creativity and how much of it is based on answering whatever the problem of the day is you know what, and that will vary from one one week to the okay. one week. I will say, oh god, my week this week has just completely been just like directed by whatever the issues are in the team at the moment. Um, whereas other weeks, it will be like, okay, no, this week has purely been about me mm-hmm. trying to. I like to spend time coming up with new ways of of using data to try and evaluate players and rank players um so when i get that bit of freedom to do that i like to do that dipping into different leagues that maybe we hadn't looked Mm -hmm. at before or trying to identify players and and scout in different areas is is something that i like to do when i've got that freedom and i do get that um i definitely do get that and it's important right because i think if you're if you're just directed the whole time then you're going to give the the answers or you're going to come up with the solutions that, that people have pushed you to. Um, yeah. So I think it's good that you get that freedom to, to work outside the box. Well, and I think that's, but that's got to be something that, you know, Carlos has definitely got to be the one that makes sure that happens, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because, because, I, because I, I suspect that there's almost an infinite number of questions that would occur to those guys mm-hmm. for you to look into and yep. they've got to almost self, self-censor and say, come on. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And and say he's fantastic at giving me that freedom personally to to bring things to the table that maybe, you know, he hasn't thought of or that that we've come up with as a department as new ways of looking at players or or new players to look at or new areas to look at. So he's been really good in giving us that freedom. And I think, you know, as a result of that, we've we've kind of benefited from it. I think we're a well, well well-rounded department in that sense. Um, we have people with expertise in in different kind of fields mm-hmm. and different areas, um, and it really works for us when it all comes together. Can't thank you enough for coming in. No, um, thank you. It's a great conversation, and I, and I think everyone listening will absolutely love this. A great look at sort of this uh, building a team and how you start from literally scratch of, hey, here's a laptop. Get us some data, oh. and then we'll start to go. Yep, definitely. It was a it was a challenge, that's for sure. <laughs> Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Mike. Okay, so that was a that was a great conversation with Lucy Rushton from the Atlanta United. I'm now joined by Ada Chong. Hi, Ada. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, Ada, I wanted to get your take on. Um, well, what I want to do as a follow up to my conversation with Lucy is sort of put some big picture perspective on it. I mean, look. Big picture. I mean, she she helped build a championship soccer team in just two years by you know providing all sorts of data and, and insights to some key decision makers over with the Atlanta United. But even beyond sort of that spectacular success, there's some bigger picture issues in terms of let's say generalizations we can make for folks who are aspiring to be analysts, whether it's in the world of sports or, or not. So, Ada, what were your um, any quick observations or takeaways that uh, or anything you want to follow up from my conversation with Lucy? Yeah, I mean, you guys were just talking about how analytics plays a huge role when making a decision in organization. So I wanted to ask you, why is it important to have both the human element and data support in decision making? Okay, so I think that's some, that's definitely something that came out of the conversation. So you know, Lucy mentioned a lot about sort of working up through layers of the organization through the, the technical director, Carlos Bocanegra, and even through the, the team president. I think the thing that you've got to, and this is this is a critical, critical point for the analysts out there, especially, you know, someone that's trying to become a sports analytics person, you know, almost in the stereotypical working in the basement, crunching numbers, figuring out advanced metrics, figuring out ways the teams can win more games. The reality is, when you're doing this stuff in an organization, there's going to be a really important human factor. And I don't want to put it out there like that the human factor is 
is a problem and the analytics knows the answer. The reality is that these things probably need to be, there needs to be some sort of balance. And in the case of sports, I think this is where the human side really, really kind of pops off the page. You know, if you're just in a company and you're, you know, retailing or banking, you know, sometimes you can mostly rely on the data. But when we're in the world of sports, you think about the kind of people that end up as coaches or general managers. These are people that have thousands upon thousands of hours of experience in a given sport. And so they've got a true level of expertise that, you know, that needs to be a big part of the decision-making process. Right. I mean, I could imagine, like, if you only solely relied on one and not the other, you can't see the full picture, right? Because I was thinking about it when I was listening to what you and Lucy were talking about earlier. If you solely relied on analytics, what if the player wasn't reliable? You need things like that. What if they weren't entertaining? Okay. They're solely just a good player. I I love the word you used, that you can't see the whole picture, and I think that's a great one. That's a great starting point. When I'm when I'm teaching this type of material, I will make the point that models analytics are great for summarizing a lot of data. Okay, and they definitely tell us something about player performance from a really let's say kind of geeky statistical perspective. You know, you build a predictive model of an athlete's performance. You're probably going to see something like an R squared, and again, like I said, from a geeky perspective, R squared tells us essentially how much of the data that are how much of the the outcome that we're interested in that our data explains. When we're, whenever you're forecasting or modeling individual performance, the R-squares don't tend to be that high, which means that the analytics often, the models, don't explain a lot of what's actually happening in, in terms of performance. The human decision maker, you know, someone with thousands upon thousands of hours of expertise in something, they see the whole picture. You know, maybe they don't have the ability to relate one variable to another, that they can't, you know, immediately translate how someone in in the case of soccer is going to uh, performance from going from an Argentinian league to the MLS. Maybe they can't directly do that, but they can look at the guy. They can see the guy play and get a very sort of big picture or holistic view of the athlete. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think a lot of teams in the MLS use both the human element and analytics and decision-making? I think the whole world of sports has evolved very quickly in the last decade or two, where I think, you know, historically in the stereotype, was it's almost like there's a trade-off between two types of folks working in front office. There's the, the grizzled old scout that just is, you know, and it's always like a baseball scout that's just watching game after game, player after player, and is evaluating players based on some sort of eyeball test. And then there's sort of the, the new whiz-bang guy that's crunching the statistics. And so I think there's been a gradual transition that has really accelerated over the last couple of years. And, and I think the real challenge maybe at the moment is how do you balance that? How do you balance the, the narrow precision of the models with the holistic but potentially biased view of the the scouts. It's something that is not going to come up in a lot of curriculum or academic training related to analytics or for self-taught analytics folks, but it's, you know, absolutely, critically of, frankly, ultimate importance in terms of having the analytics actually uh, benefit an organization, is being able to work with those two types of sort of almost machine intelligence, data crunching, and actually the human ability to put everything together her job is so cool (laughs) (laughs) lucy's job is really cool and and lucy in particular is an interesting kind of analyst in that she as one person is kind of doing both she's watching a lot of video and she's clearly an expert in soccer um lucy has a background as a player has been doing this for years and years and so lucy has a great ability to take the data and actually make that you know, begin to really make that translation to what dis- decision makers are going to need to decide, who, you know, who they're going to sign, what, how, they're, how, they're, how they're going to play games. So, you know, she does have an amazingly cool job, I would think, and, you know, I, and I think she's great at what she does, that one of the challenges in that is being good at sort of these two, it's almost like a left brain, right brain kind of thing, being able to combine both of those ways of thinking in the, in the same head. 
You said something that was interesting. Um, Lucy was a player. Do you think it's important to be a player to be in her role? Maybe. I, th- I think it's a maybe because it really depends on almost, and this might sound like a strange word for it, but almost the maturity of the analyst. A lot of folks working in the realm of analytics, you know, almost operate where the key is to come up with one magical model, sort of one formula, and that's going to lead the team to victory. And that that can be sort of problematic in terms of, you know, like I said, this idea that very often the models are precise, but limited. The realization that the models, you know, give you some precision, but you know, have some inherent limitations. And that's where I think being a player has a lot of value in that, you know, the players that play the game, you know, if you grow up playing a game or really any sport, you know, you, you're going to have a gut feel for the limitations in the model, what they're not explaining. And so I answer that as yes and no, because I I think it, it definitely helps, right? Lucy knows the limitations of the model, but the analyst who, let's say, can't play, maybe doesn't have the natural talent, that's something that, you know, should not be a start, uh, something that stops the career. It's just something that the person needs to be aware of and have a, sort of a better perspective in terms of how the models are used and how decisions are made. Yeah, I get that. You know, the, the other thing that I think becomes important when you think about being a player and or, or being a coach, and this is something that doesn't come directly out of the conversation I had with Lucy, but it's something that that, you know, again, is almost more of an academic take on some of this stuff. And so, you know, we all know coaches and experienced players have a real, a real grasp, sort of a fundamental knowledge of the game. You know, as we talk about the importance of being a player or the value of, you know, experienced humans in making these kinds of decisions, this leads us to something that is very much an academic topic, and that is the identification of decision biases. Now, you know, the word bias has a very negative connotation in terms of, you know, you're going to discriminate against something or not. From, a, you know, an academic or psychological perspective, all we're really saying with the word bias is maybe your decisions end up being almost skewed in a certain direction. And so when we talk about the importance of experience, experience is great in that you get to see, you know, you get a judgment about the whole, right? So the experienced coach or general manager they can eyeball test the guy and get a, you know, have a sense of, you know, is this guy going to be productive in this system very quickly without having to run all sorts of statistical analyses. Um, the models we've said are very much geared towards being very precise, but perhaps sort of narrow in terms of not explaining very much. That raises the issue of, well, then why don't we just always trust the human decision maker? And the issue becomes, well, what are the cognitive biases or limitations by the person signing the checks or finally or doing the final assembly of the roster. So what's an example of a decision bias? There's all sorts of decision biases that people have identified over the last few years. And, and at some point on the podcast, we'll do a full episode perhaps on decision biases. They are you know, there, there's all sorts of them. I mean, one of one of the ones that I've used in some of my academic work is the negativity bias. The negativity bias, real simply put, is the idea that decision makers more heavily weight pieces of negative information relative to positive information. Okay, so how does that matter for uh, you know a, a general manager or someone building a team? Perhaps it's just something that the model can correct for. You know, you know, think about potential negative pieces of information in sports. Oh, maybe they had a bad workout at the NFL Combine. Maybe they were busted for marijuana, right? These little negative signals. How much should you weight those negative signals? Okay, and and, and so this is where I think the models can come into play is like, well, this guy still perhaps, even with a negative signal or two, this guy still rates very highly in terms of the model. Then the decision maker maybe someone that would always sort of discard anyone with any controversy might say, okay, we'll give them a shot. We'll take a second look. So if there are five positive things about a player, but one negative thing, are you saying that the one negative thing weighs more than all five or would it be comparing one positive thing to one negative thing and that negative thing weighs heavier than that one positive? Well, and I mean, that's a very theoretical way of putting it. And I would say that ends up being kind of an empirical question. And it's not so much, you know, the, the question of, like, let's say that's negativity bias isn't so much, you know, how does it work in general? It's how does it work for any specific individual, okay? And so maybe there are 
sort of essentially ultra concern. I mean, the negative bias, these, the negativity bias might translate to a, a general manager who's very conservative in terms of player selection. So perhaps for that type of decision maker, the models can steer them to almost being a little less conservative, you know, giving a second chance to a player with, with a blemish. Mm-hmm. And I think that's and I, I think that's something that you know aspiring analysts don't think enough about. You know, they all want to come up with the magic formula that's going to you know win the team the championship. When the reality is, it's more like you're crunching the numbers so you can help decision makers kind of overcome some of their blind spots. That's a good point. Well, why don't we uh, why don't we wrap it up from there? I hope you folks really enjoyed it. We're trying to do some stuff that's a little bit different with the last few episodes sort of digging in with an expert in a given field and then trying to sort of wrap it up in terms of the big picture maybe a little bit more theory sort of a little bit more of an academic tone on the second half it was um, awesome and very grateful for Lucy to come in and take the time and talk to us and you know especially for those of us in Atlanta but for those of you guys outside of Atlanta the Atlanta United is a phenomenal story and Lucy Rushton was um, someone we were really happy to sit down with and talk to. Yeah, the games are so fun if you haven't been before. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> worth it. Oh, th- you know what? That That's another little bit of insight, so we'll just prolong this for a minute more. One of the things that Lucy mentioned was that there's almost a little bit of a piece of background in terms of how that roster was assembled, and that they had decided on the playing style and then fit players into that. That, as a marketing guy as someone who's into marketing and sports analytics i love hearing stuff like that because it suggests that people are starting to make an explicit connection between the product on the field and the fan response they're building a brand by doing that they're building a brand they're looking for exciting sort of high-flying players from south america perhaps on the on the front of the field it's great and and i think this is where sports analytics needs to go in terms of not a silo for the business side and then a silo for the on-field side but thinking about this collectively in terms of you know how do you put it how do you put an exciting proficient winning team on the field with an eye towards how that's going to create a, a fan base and a customer base over time they nailed it as always guys um you know please you know rate and subscribe us on itunes anything else ada no we appreciate you guys listening okay thanks guys till next time bye